Hi folks, a very quick announcement before we get started on the episode this week. And that is a huge thank you to Katie Unicorn Stewart. I don't know if your middle name really is Unicorn. If it is, that is an awesome name. So the fabulous Katie Unicorn Stewart gave us a recent review on Apple Podcasts about the recent Governance Summit summary. So five stars for Take On Board, she says. Loved the recent Governance Summit summary podcasts. Super useful. Katie, happy to help. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to do a review. So a little prompt for others that might be listening. I love it when I get reviews and you might get read out on the pod as well. So get in there and work out how to do ratings and reviews and let me know what you think of the pod. All right, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Megan Dwyer about collective leadership. First, let me tell you about Megan. Megan is a partner and executive director at John Wardle Architects. She joined the practice over 20 years ago when the team numbered just eight. Today, the practice is led by five partners and the team has grown to 120 people. The business is currently transitioning to a model of collective leadership with a view to growing the business whilst also retaining their unique culture. She's previously served on a number of advisory committees, including the RMIT Architecture Program Advisory Committee and the Building Advisory Council. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Megan. Fabulous. Thanks, Helia. It's terrific to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to have this conversation about collective leadership. However, before we go there, as always, I would love to dig a little bit deeper about you. So can you tell me a story about young Megan that tells us a bit about how you got to where you are today? Yes, um, I sometimes reflect on that myself. And one observation that I've, I've made is that both my parents were what I call hobby taskers. And so they were all the time making things and doing things with their hands, whether that was restoring furniture or gardening, sewing, fixing a car engine, any number of things. They were also politically active and there were always loads and loads of books around the house so I I think what I learned from my parents was that you could I sort of have this innate belief that you can shape the world around you whether that's physically through making things or through ideas and political action Um, so a a really fabulous combination of things for an architect Um, yeah yeah. it's so interesting oh there's so many interesting things there already but I'm interested that shaping the world around you from that learning and political action and that that's a key thing for an architect. I'll be honest, I wouldn't have thought in my mind, I wouldn't have necessarily connected just the the two parts of it, political action and architecture. So talk me through that. 
Yes, yeah, yeah. Look, it's probably in a way a choice that an architect can make that they can bring mm. their, well, I, I think in fact every architect brings their values to their work whether they mean it or not. Yeah. But some architects really operate with a, a very distinct intent to shape the world around them in a particular way. Mm. And I think for me it's sort of about, you know, I have this great passion for cities and, and a great passion for making cities better. And architecture, of course, makes a big contribution to that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that that's kind of the way that I combine my values and my social political values and my action as an architect to make things. And as I say, we'll definitely get on to collective leadership in a moment, but I, I'm having so much fun digging here. And in fact, I suspect some of it connects to collective leadership in a way. But I'm interested there, you've used values a number of times. What are your key values and how do they show up for you in your work? Well, look, I really do believe in a common good, I suppose, that the cities and towns built environment that we create really impacts everyone, despite the fact that it's often delivered by actors who have a bit part in the play, if you like. I sort of believe that with every change we make to our cities we're sending them in a one particular direction or another and I do believe that we should be working to make our cities better for everyone not just for the individual interests that we often encounter in our work Mm. as an architect. So I can hear in there a bit of a collective view which might segue us beautifully. Collective leadership is something that you are consciously trying to embed in your organisation. So Can you tell us what collective leadership means to you and how that shows up in your board of directors for your organisation? Absolutely. Well, this is really something that we're transitioning to. For a very long time, we were led by our founding director, John Wardle, and he was the majority shareholder. Today, we have five directors. And uh, I might just give them a shout out if I could. We have, in Mm. addition to John, Stephen Mee, Matthew Van Coy and James Loder and myself, I make five. And interestingly, we span across quite a wide age group, probably perhaps as much as 30 years age difference between the eldest and the the youngest. And so we're transitioning from a, a business that was very much led by John into a business that will be led by the five of us collectively. And so I think we are really finding out as we go more and more about collective leadership and how we sort of operate in that way. I have done a, just in the course of that transition, I have done a little bit of research and I could read out one or two definitions if that would really help crystallise perhaps what we're talking about. One I particularly like, we have defined collective leadership as a group of people working together toward a shared goal. When collective leadership is happening, people are internally and externally motivated, working together toward a shared vision within a group and using their unique talents and skills to contribute to the success. Mm-hmm. Beautiful definition. Uh, we have been working together for quite some time, and I think we do work with shared values, which is particularly important, I think, if we're to get this to work. But we do each bring different perspectives and um, certainly different skill sets to the table. So I think we're really well positioned to, to come together and work really effectively as a group of leaders. I mean, all of the research around diversity shows that diverse groups make better decisions, but sometimes those decisions are harder to come by because of the diversity. It's a bit of a double-edged sword in a way. There's better decisions, but they're harder. Firstly, I guess it sounds like you've got that diverse group. Is that your experience as well, that the decision-making is probably stronger, but there's some challenges in that as well? Again, it's something that we're learning more and more about as we go. I think 
we do need to take the time. We do need to stop and listen very carefully to what each other is saying and, in fact, you know, take in the different perspectives that people bring. That sort of ends up in a more expansive kind of conversation often and we're having to sort of funnel it back to, to focus again on the actual decision that we need at that point in time. I think I would agree that we do make better decisions. And I think the industry that we work in has so many different sort of drivers and, you know, long-term drivers, short-term drivers, investment for the future, immediate versus immediate needs. So there's a lot of different considerations that we do need to take into account. So yes, decision-making can be quite challenging, but I do think that we're becoming more and more effective at getting there more quickly. And I think we're making good sound decisions about the future of the business. Just out of interest, so how long did this transition from the single owner model through to this broader group, how long's that journey been? Like when was go to, I mean, now you're still midway through it. I don't think these things are ever finished in a way, but yeah, how far into the journey are you? For some time there, there have been two directors in the business and it's probably in the last couple of years that we've actually expanded out to be a group of five. And so I would say that it's in that last two-year period where we've really started to workshop this kind of idea of collective leadership. In that two years as you've been doing it, what are some of the things both you've done as a group of board of directors to try it on for size and to grow into that? And also within the organisation as well, how has that potentially influenced the organisation's culture more generally? Really good question. I'd probably perhaps start a bit back to front to say that I think that the culture of our business for a very long time has had this collective sense to it. So certainly the way that we work as a group of architects and a group of designers is very much in a kind of collective model. So we'll often come around the table together to solve a, a design challenge and to set creative direction. So in a way, it is inherent in the business and it is perhaps now that we are sort of reflecting that culture in our governance structure. So perhaps the, a bit the opposite way around. Yeah. I'm sure there's also impacts down the other way now. We're currently a business of about 120 and so it is in fact 120 people who need to shift to work in this new way. It's not just the five mm. uh, directors. It's interesting hearing that, that it's kind of, it's that bottom-up approach rather than top-down. The organisation was already working in a collective way so the leadership of it is kind of catching up in a way to that collective way of working rather than the other way around. That's really interesting as well that it brings it in that direction as well. It's a great thing, I think, that the leadership of the organisation then recognise that and amend the way they're working to uh, reflect the organisation as well. Mm. Uh, many of us have been in the practice for quite a long time. So in a way, it's sort of an extension of our own growth, in fact, that we've stepped into sort of leadership positions in the business. And then after that, we've sort of stepped into these governance positions. So it's sort of been a, we've been able to grow our own skills and expertise and contribution in parallel with the growth of the business from eight to 120. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel very fortunate for that opportunity. So I'm wondering then in that growing process, both of the organisation and the growing into the collective leadership processes, I'm wondering what the growing pains have been in that because there sometimes are both in terms of the growth of the business but also using that more collective model in a leadership sense. Has there been any uh, that you've observed that you're willing to share with us? 
we're used to growing pains for starters, just having a continual sort of growth path over such a long period of time. So we, we do sort of recognise that they come with the territory a bit. In terms of just that the change in governance, I think for all of us stepping into the director role, we've probably had to, in a way, take off our career path hat and put on a director hat or a business hat and really shift our thinking to focus on the responsibility we now have to Mm -hmm. sort of direct Mm -hmm. the business. So that's certainly something that I think we've each had to kind of grapple with. Uh, And then in doing that, we've then had to really focus on the relationships we have with each other and make sure they're as productive as they possibly can be. If we think about the last two years, of course, Mm -hmm. we've been through the pandemic. Just before that, a year before that, we did open a Sydney studio. So there have been quite a few significant challenges that we've had to navigate as a group just in that fairly short space of time. And it's not without its tensions from time to time. But I personally would prefer to work with a little bit of sort of productive tension rather than avoid the difficult conversations. Productive tension, tell me more. It sounds like a very interesting concept. So tell, tell me more. What does that mean to you and how does it show up? Look, for me, it, it just means not avoiding the difficult questions and that inevitably there are different viewpoints or blind spots or challenges that we might be facing personally that we need to make the others aware of. It could be any number of things, but to really sort of sit in that slightly uncomfortable space and address those things is just so incredibly important to collective leadership. And in some ways, that has also been an aspect of the the culture in the business, because I think a creative design process requires that there is a great deal of trust that we do share. We're quite vulnerable. We share ideas and opinions with the expectation that they will be perhaps challenged and that, you know, we're very committed to delivering the best design work we possibly can. And so we're sort of used to that sort of slightly uncomfortable space in that way. And really, again, it's sort of reflected or must be reflected in our governance structure if we're to lead the business um, in the best Mm -hmm. way we possibly can. So then in the governance space, in the boardroom collectively, how does that vulnerability show up and trust, like both sides of the coin, they're connected to each other. How does it show up for you in the boardroom? I think we've learned to be quite sort of frank with each other. And I think collective leadership is about the group coming together. But what it depends upon is having very positive relationships one-on-one. And so if you... I can't quite do the maths, but, you know, you end up with between five different people, you end up with many one-to-one relationships and each of those has to be worked on, I suppose. You you know, the the level of trust and vulnerability needs to be across all of those relationships. And I think at times we each need to be reminded of that. And in order to remain productive, we really need to be having the right conversations with the right one of the five if or two of the five, whatever combination it, it is. But that direct line of communication is key to maintaining that trust and vulnerability. I'd be interested to hear your reflections about how you make sure the board conversations are, you know, governance and strategic when you're all wearing a couple of hats. Yes, a very good question. And I suspect this is a challenge that most small to medium businesses have. We often use the expression rabbit hole if we're heading down into an operational question that isn't relevant to a strategic conversation, but we do 
have to remind each other about that and sort of refocus on the, the question at hand. Not easy. I'm sure that we often come to any kind of strategic conversation having just left multiple sort of day-to-day activities and so it can be a real challenge. We do contemplate the benefit of having perhaps an advisory board or other other mm. board members. We feel that that's perhaps a step that's ahead of us just at the minute. We'd like to kind of consolidate the way that we're working together at the moment before we sort of take a step and do that. But I think that generally speaking, we would all say that we can sort of see benefit in, in having that perhaps mm. more objective viewpoint around the table. It's just an interesting challenge. You know, if there was a nice, neat line between this is management, this is governance, then you could be really clear in it. But of course, we all know that it's not a nice, neat line and it moves. So is it the same group? Is the board also the management team or are there additional people? Very good question. The management group is wider than the board. We have a number of people who join us in those meetings. We have a finance leader. We have a principal who looks after the probably operating officer close Mm. to. And then we have a number of our senior team join us as well. And they're minor shareholders. So Mm. they do have a a small interest in the the business as well. But we probably come together as a group of perhaps 10 or 12. Right. Interesting. You've talked about how the business has grown and how the board has grown into that collective leadership. I'm interested in how you've grown in the business and how you've grown up in the business. What are your reflections there? Well, I must say it's been a very compelling 20 years. I joined as quite a young architect and I really, I I was very fortunate to kind of join the business at the time that its growth trajectory kind of really took off. So as a young architect, I found myself suddenly leading these really quite large complex projects in the higher education sector actually is where a lot of my work has been and that through some very good fortune and lots of hard work that that has grown into actually really quite a broad portfolio where we've worked with many universities right across Australia to deliver some really significant projects and from that we've sort of broadened the portfolio out now to include a number of sort of public sectors, if you like. So we're just about to complete our first hospital, the Victorian Heart Hospital out at Monash University. We're just doing the Bendigo Law Courts, which is a $150 million development out uh, in regional Victoria. And so we've really sort of expanded the portfolio out to, to include all of these sectors. So that's certainly been a particularly rewarding thing to be a part of. And I suppose, as I mentioned before, I do feel like I've continued to grow and and I've Mm -hmm. been able to kind of step into it, perhaps first of all, a a role where I've contributed to the management of the practice and now, of course, the governance of the practice. Yeah, so it's a business that I know particularly well. It's a business that I've helped to sort of shape and it's a business where over time we have invited sort of more and more people to join us to bring their own skills and experience to the table. So I must say we benefit from having a really extraordinary team. They're they're very sort of skilled professionals, very creative thinkers. We have all manner of sort of extracurricular activities that they also sort of bring to the practice. It's a real pleasure to work with them. Extracurricular activities that they bring to the practice. I'm intrigued. Like what? Um, We have musicians, we have photographers. One of our architects has 
consistently been winning prizes for his furniture design. We have all of this kind of creative skill and energy that we probably benefit from, despite the fact it's not directly related to Mm. architecture, but we're really appreciate the richness that that brings to their thinking and celebrate with them when they have these successes. Now, just because you started talking about some of the buildings or developments that you've been involved in, I want to circle back because way back at the start, you said this process is about your vision and values coming to light. I'm wondering if there's a particular building or development that you've been involved in that you can tell us about that kind of showcases that vision and values from you. Um, One I'm particularly fond of is the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music, which sits down on Sturt Street, you may Mm. know it. Yes, beautiful. Thank you. We worked with Melbourne Uni for quite a while on that one just to find how it might be feasible. And that was sort of looking at the brief and understanding, balancing that with the cost and looking at site locations looked at different possibilities of co-locating with industry partners. So we, we really did a deep exploration with Melbourne Uni to kind of arrive at what would be feasible. It then went out to a design competition. And so we were one of five architects to then prepare a design to be selected as the architects for that project. And I must say, we did try it particularly hard for that one and were very fortunate to be selected for it. And so what I love about that building is that it sits in a very public location. But in fact, the the changes that we made around that building really opened the university campus out to the public street. And Mm -hmm. of course, this is a theme that's consistent across many universities that they want to engage much more with their communities and with their industry partners. And then the building also really invites people to understand what's happening within it. So the very large circular window that you might know is really designed to allow passerbys to understand what happens in that space. And those large music rehearsal spaces typically, or technically perhaps, need to be these black boxes that are acoustically isolated. So to propose a big round window mm. in the side of it is an unusual thing. But we, we certainly, we in fact, we worked with Amanda from... Marshall Day, who you've spoken mm-hmm. with um, recently, we worked with her team to really understand how we could achieve that technically. Um, mm-hmm. And we were able to, to really, I guess, add something back to the, the public realm and enrich the experience of, of people in the street. So it's, it's not just a, a building for the people within it, but it's for the, the people who pass by too. How beautiful. Thank you. Oh, I'm glad I asked that. It really brings it to light. <laughs> Megan, fabulous conversation. What are the key things you want people to take away from the broad-ranging conversation that we've had today? Well, I suppose we've focused on collective leadership and I think we've certainly found that to be a really productive way of working and I would encourage people to think about the, the benefits that come with collective leadership. And, of course, one of the challenges we spoke about were the, the tensions or the productive tension and the willingness to kind of sit in that space to and I believe that's probably where you get the most value in a way Um, but of course you do have to be prepared to stay there so I think they're probably the two key points that I I would have yeah and is there a resource you would like to share with the take on board community Mm. do you know as we've embarked on this collective leadership journey I have done some research to find articles and books that do speak about collective leadership and in fact there are two that I would share one is five elements of collective leadership and the other is called collective leadership the what why and how and I think they're two really good sort of short form documents that really do talk about collective leadership in a really kind of clear and easy to understand way so I've found them to be really valuable oh fantastic if you 
send us through those links. We will make sure they appear in the show notes for people to learn more about collective leadership. Megan, thank you. It has been such a joy to have this conversation. So many interesting things to think about in here. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today to share your collective leadership wisdom with the Take On Board community today. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Hi there, it's Halia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.